0: ask your average American musician what studio they would most like to record in and you will likely hear the words Abbey Road. The London location has been a home away from home for American artists since the 1930s and continues in that role to this very day. From Abbey Road Studios in London, I'm Dr. Alan Campbell and this is a special edition of Watching America. Watching
1: America all my life. There's
0: panic in America.
1: Oh, 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 oh.
0: There's trouble in America. Oh, 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 oh. On location in the UK, this is a special edition of Watching America from Abbey Road Studios in London. Welcome to Watching America. In 1831, a nine-bedroom Georgian house was built in the prestigious Westminster-slash-London area known as St. John's Wood. Ninety-eight years later, in 1929, the Gramophone Recording Company acquired the building to make, well, recordings. And in 1931, the studio was in business, one hundred years after its construction, one of the first recordings to be made was made by the African-American actor and singer Paul Robeson with the British band leader Ray Noble. Jazz got me Came by my. Side Since that time so many artists have recorded at Abbey Road Studios that it's impossible to come up with a complete list, but here's a few. Sting, James Taylor, U2, Vatswala, Amy Winehouse, Mick Jagger, Stevie Wonder, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Aretha Franklin, Kanye West, Miley Cyrus, Tony Bennett, Adele, Placido Domingo, Niles Barkley, Ella Fitzgerald, ABBA, Green Day, Michael Buble, The Hollies, Iron Maiden, Mary J. Blige, John Mayer, Metallica, Glenn Miller, Olivia Newton-John, Itzhak Perlman, The Pet Shop Boys, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Connie Francis, Foo Fighters, Michael Jackson, Duran Duran, Alicia Keys, Lady Gaga, Elvis Costello, Muse, Queen, Elton John, Oasis, Donovan, Cliff Richard, Ed Sheeran, Arthur Rubinstein, Pink Floyd, Radiohead, and yes of course, The Beatles. Today we will hear from Giles Martin, the son of The Beatles' late producer, Sir George Martin, and most extensively from my interview with Merrick Stiles, Abbey Road engineer and head of Abbey Road's audio products. We will begin with my time with Merrick Stiles in Abbey Road's most treasured space. I'm in the Holy of Holies regarding recording studios. I'm in Studio 2 of Abbey Road, and this is the prominent studio that was used by the Beatles, of course, where the Beatles recorded the majority of their recordings, but also used now for extensively soundtrack recordings and historically for orchestral recordings. Adjacent to it is the ascending staircase, which leads to the control room. When you think of all the key albums from Revolver, Rubber Soul, Meet the Beatles all the way through to uh, certainly Sergeant Pepper with the striking of the E major chord. This is it. This is, if you will, ground zero for significant pop music of the 20th century. Indeed, it's just as described, the tea biscuit colour that George Martin said was uh, used for the baffles, for soundproofing and what have you. Uh, one sees just as one would anticipate the dividers coming out on either side. When you first came into this studio, what was your initial reaction?
1: Apart from the smell? <laughs> 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 no, it's, just, it's, it's, it's got that lovely kind of wood smell from the floor, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that's something I always pick up on. But, um, I mean, this studio is... Um, unlike the other studios, is pretty much unchanged since it opened in 1931. Um, so I guess you just get, you really do get the sense of history in, in this room because it, it feels kind of like it's been untouched in a way. I mean, there's been a few small things over the years, like we added some booths at the back here uh, recently to get a bit more isolation for musicians. The staircase was installed in the late 50s to get access to the new control room uh, when it was moved up a floor. Uh, these huge screens at the back here were added in the late 60s but I mean apart from that it's pretty much as it was so they kind of nailed it first time as it were back then Um, so yeah it's just a a, it's just a a rare example I would say this day and age of a of of a recording studio from back in the day I mean they don't really build them like this anymore and there aren't many left if any but certainly not from 1931 uh, and the herringbone floor, which is uh, famous, is this the original herringbone floor? or Have they repaired it over the years? or Very few and far between. Uh, it, it literally changes the sound of the room when you do that. Um, so we don't like to mess with the acoustics here too much. So we, we try to avoid that when, you know, we don't do it very often. As we have an American audience for this show, um, when
0: Americans come in here, is there a decidedly different effect on them as opposed to perhaps British musicians, or is it universally the same?
1: Pretty much most people who are music fans or they know what's gone in in this room tend to have the same reaction no matter what country they're from, from my experience. Would you permit me the license to walk up the the grand staircase here? Uh, Go for it, Okay, please
0: do. And you're going to hear the clumpity clump of the famous staircase. So here we go. And what was unique about this is that, unlike most studios, it had an upstairs control room. Still does, in fact. It's been modified over the years and people would bob in and bob out. The room is history. But as we shall see, the work of Abbey Road is not strictly history. It is both the present and the future. I am speaking with Merrick Stiles. Merrick Stiles is the head of audio products, but he has an extensive history with Abbey Road behind that and elsewhere. Can I begin by asking you how you became associated with Abbey Road?
1: I started working here about 21 years ago. Uh, I I was offered the job as studio runner, so um, that's how I started here. Once you got in and
0: you'd been here a week, a month, a year, how long did it actually take for, if you will, the, the... or inspiring environment to wear off, or does it ever?
1: Um, yeah, I'm not sure it actually ever really wears off. You know, there's people outside all the time, or you see, uh, you know, artists around, great musicians, fantastic producers, engineers, or you read something here or there about the history of the place, and it just instantly reminds you of how special the place is. So I don't think it ever wears off. Well, when you think of world studios, uh, Capitol
0: Records on Vine in Los Angeles off Sunset comes to mind. You think of Sun Records in Memphis. You think of RCA Nashville. Um, one might think of Muscle Shoals. That's in the United States, uh, Hitsville, USA, uh, Detroit. In Britain, traditionally in London, you thought primarily of three studios. Trident, which used to be in Soho, which is no longer functioning the same way. Olympic, where the Stones and the Who recorded out in Barnes, which is now regrettably cinemas but obviously abbey road is the grand master of them all to what do you attribute that
1: those studios you mentioned they were very focused on um probably purely because of the size they were focused on on pop um i guess that's what i'm saying is abbey road is very diverse we do not only pop and rock uh, today you know hip hop grime whatever you want to call it um edm even um but but we've also always done historic uh, historically done classical recordings which kind of molded into doing um film scores at the end of the day um so we've always been able to you know ride with the times ride with the trends um because we're so diverse up until i would say the let's say the late 80s for the sake of argument Um, the the only way you could do a recording is to go to a professional recording studio so every um, record that was released it was done in a professional studio so studios were springing up all over the place they are all over London all over the country all over the world Um, that changed when people could actually buy equipment that allowed them to record independently I suppose is the way I put it Um, whether that's in your home or a project studio in a, in a warehouse somewhere, whatever it may be, you, you had this independence now where you didn't have to go to a professional studio to record anymore. I'm not saying that there was a quality difference. There certainly was back then, especially, um, but you could still do it. Um, so the, the, the trends, the tides changed quite considerably. Um, and that just, that just continued with um, software, plugins, laptops, soft instruments. Um, people can now get incredibly <laughs> amazing recordings um, from a laptop, even from a mobile phone. Um, and that certainly wasn't the case back in the 70s when these studios were thriving. Uh, so yeah. that, that's the other main thing.
0: Now you're in charge of marketing and, and products, audio products for Abbey Road as it stands now. Yeah. When mm-hmm. this institution made a decision to go with plugins which it did after 2000, about 2005, et cetera. And then moreover, go with intr- instrumentation, for instance, the Abbey Road drums from 60s, 70s, 80s, et cetera. Was there any worry that you were devaluing the brand?
1: It, it helps the brand. It, it says to the world that we're not a closed door. You don't, you know, we cater to all musicians, all artists, all engineers, producers, no matter whether you're just starting out in your bedroom or whether you're a fully fledged professional, um, it's it, you know we just want to be able to help people make music. So that certainly wasn't a concern. Um, Abbey Road, if you look back over the years, has always kind of you know been at the forefront of, of innovation um, and also probably slightly uncomfortable scenarios, if if you want to put it that way. I mean. Uh, plugins came along, yeah, in the um, early 2000s. Uh, I guess before that, what did we have? We had MIDI. People were really concerned when MIDI came along. Uh, musicians were concerned. Musicians' union was concerned that's, that everyone was going to get replaced by these synthesizers. Um, it wasn't the case. Uh, I mean, let's go back even further. Let's say when Abbey Road first started, we were cutting to, to to a lathe, to a lacquer still, or uh, well actually wax before that. Um, so you had two options, start and stop, right? You had to get the perfect performance from a band, artist or musician. No mistakes, you know, you'd have to start again effectively. Tape machines came along after of the second world war uh, and like, whoa, okay, great. We can now just cut loads of performances together. And and splice them together, and no one would know, you know. Is this cheating? <laughs> Should this be allowed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. there's loads of examples throughout history, not just in the music industry, in any in- industry, where you have to push the boundaries, go with the time, get out your comfort zone, and try things out. And yeah, we tried the plugins out, and they've been really successful. People love them. It's um, yeah, it's cool. There was always that austere feeling about the
0: place, uh, not only because you're in Saint John's Wood, one of the nicest sections of London, without. Argumentation. Never build a studio
1: here now. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, with the high real estate and uh, just, just beautiful environ. But you used to have the era of the men with the white lab coats, and that slowly went away. Uh, you've alluded to the fact that there is something greatly intimidating
1: about the idea of having access to this building. How does one compensate for that? I think like any great establishment, it's you know the staff put you at ease. They're so friendly and professional, um, and and know how to help you and and get the best. You know for, you know you know what do you want to achieve? We're here to help you do that. Now, as an engineer, recording
0: engineer, you you build up an arsenal of of instrumentation and miking and systems that you like to use. Do you have regular go to systems that you start with when you're working with an artist and you say this is the way I'd like to mic the drums, and this is the way I'd like to cover the bass. Uh, how do you work that out with the
1: artist? Some artists know exactly what they want from a technical point of view, and other artists, they have no interest in that. I'm not saying either is right or wrong. It's just, you know, that's the way everyone is. They've got their different ways of doing things. And then, OK, we can look at a producer, and some producers are very technically minded and know what they want technically, or they just, they just want to deal with the music. You know, it's, all, it's different for different people. I guess what t- generally tends to happen is um, you learn from other people in the room as, as a younger assistant or, or runner or tape-op. Um, and you learn what works, what doesn't work, or you pick up techniques from other people. Um, I guess it's a bit of a dub- double-edged sword because you can kind of become quite closed-minded sometimes. And it's a trap I've to certainly fall into where you see amazing people what techniques they use and you think oh that works that's brilliant I'm going to do that from now on and then you kind of you don't you forget about oh maybe I should experiment a bit here or try this instead this microphone on this vocal you know see what that sounds like I'd like to ask you about mentoring
0: if there was any mentoring here for instance you obviously from the Beatle era you had Jeff Emmerich Um, others came Norman Smith Peter Vince what have you would they take you under their wing and say, look, uh, let me show you what I did and how I handled this? Were were they accessible to you or was it sort of find your own way and fall when you need to?
1: I I don't think any engineers, certainly I've met, are very secretive about what they're doing. And if you ask a question, they're going to tell you um, because you're interested and they're interested. You know, it's a two-way thing. Um, So, I mean, if we go back to, let's say, like the first um, wave of, of pop engineers here, um, like people like Malcolm Addy, mm-hmm. uh, Stuart Eltham, mm-hmm. they would have learnt from from classical recording engineers, and also maybe you know some sort of big band sort of stuff. But certainly rock and roll was it didn't exist. So when they started doing these rock and roll sessions, they had to take what they'd learnt from non rock and roll sessions and and adapt it. You know Abbey Road's been open since 1931, and if you think about it, the engineers working here today um, have got you know knowledge that has been passed down from 1931, which is pretty unique. Uh, sadly, the key architects
0: of the British sound, a sound which, interestingly, uh, it skips backwards and forwards across the Atlantic, emulation, the Beatles were very interested in the sound of Motown, for instance, uh, and then the Americans became very interested in, in the British sound. When you think of the British sound, you think of George Martin, Jeff Eberich, Norman Smith, and, and Peter Vince, all of whom, unfortunately, have left us at this point. But they have left uh, a legacy. How does that affect Abbey Road today? And how do you continue to honour not only their names, but the quality and craft of their artistry?
1: The techniques that, that those engineers and producers used um, are still being used. Uh, I mean, Jeff Emmerich, for example, um, his microphone choice um, for, for drums, guitars and vocals... Uh, I was lucky enough to work with with Jeff Emmerich um, and see him in action, as it were. Um, and when I walk into a session today, I'm, I, I still see things that remind me of, of of that. Can I ask you a question, technical question?
0: When you have somebody like Jeff Emmerich, who is very deliberate in the way he set up his mic choice for drums, and then you have a producer like Glyn Johns who comes along, and he does the mic over and off, off to the side with the snare, and it still sounds effective. Is it hard to make an adjustment like that, or do you feel a disloyalty you if you incorporate a different technique in recording, versus your forefather, so to speak, who did it a certain way?
1: I'd never actually personally tried the Glyn Johns technique you just you just mentioned, uh, and we tried it, and I mean, first time I heard it, it was a bit sort of like, whoa, you know what's going on here, and um, but you know we we. we We carried on using it, and eventually I was just like, yeah, okay, I get it now. It's amazing how quickly the ear adapts, I would say. Um, That's one of the great things about human beings, that they're pretty good at adapting.
0: Now, one of the things you did with the 60s material was you tried, obviously, to emulate it, and you've done a very successful job um, with the software. But the 60s red four-track mixing machines have long since been retired, so Paul McCartney owns one, as I still understand Uh, you had a tremendous sell-off in the 1980s. What happened to the majority of that equipment? Does Abbey Road retain any of it anymore?
1: Yeah, there's there's been so many stories over the years of where this gear is. Yes, we do have a lot of it still. These stories get really weird. Um, I think it was someone's hairdresser said, oh, my friend owns an original Abbey Road piano, Um, and that person ended up giving the piano to that person in the hairdresser and then they tried to sell it and then we contacted them saying I'm pretty sure that belongs to us originally. I mean, how do you get a piano out of this building without anyone noticing? I don't know, but this was the 60s. Who, knew, who knows what's going on? So there's things like that where stuff has come back. Stuff we've obviously we've kept historically. Um, I think the piano was used for uh, Lady Madonna. I've seen the list of what was sold and there was nothing too crazy where it's just like, oh my God, I can't believe we sold that. Okay, A couple of examples, the Mellotron was sold, um, but that now belongs to Sir Paul McCartney, so that's fine, you know, back to, you know, back to home. Let me ask you a question I've always wondered.
0: When it comes to the masters of various recordings, whether it be Pink Floyd or Oasis or whether it become the Beatles catalogue, the original Mm. masters, were they kept...
1: So all the masters are kept in in the archives in Hayes. It's like that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, when the <laughs> arc's being pushed through this massive yeah. warehouse, and the yeah. camera pulls back, and it just goes on forever. It is a bit like that. It's it's where the original EMI factories were. With the
0: magnetism wearing off the oxide tape, everything that I presume has been digitized that's ever been recorded here is that correct?
1: We, I'm, we're getting there slowly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big, big talk. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's actually something interesting about the oxide thing. I mean, I, so you're you're talking about when you play an old tape. Right. Uh, the oxide comes off on the on the heads. Yes. It all gunks up, sticks up, seizes up, and you can't exactly. play it. Yeah. Then there's the process called baking, where if you put the the tape, which, which has got the problem, in an oven at a very low temperature, we're sort of talking, you know, 10 degrees or something like that, over, you know, three or four days, it gives you a window to get the information off the tape again. Ah. The interesting thing is that, I mean, every tape i have ever used even stuff that's just 10 years old it, it has this problem mm. except for emi used to make their own tape called Emmy tape they did that from well from the beginning late 40s um, right through to the sort of mid 70s and i don't know what they put in that tape it's probably highly illegal now um <laughs> uh, the ox it, it doesn't have the problem it just plays every single master done on emmy tape so that's all the beatles masters a lot of pink floyd stuff you put it on the machine hit play and it doesn't have any problems whatsoever so yeah emmy tape just unbelievable built like a tank but like i say the, 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 that secret ingredient is uh, probably like highly um unethical god knows <laughs> but-
0: right next question i have is going back technically early um abbey road amongst many other distinctions has, in 1934, um, the, the rarity of having a complete genius as far as audio is concerned, Alan Blumlin. And he was the first person to record stereo, and he did it here at Abbey Roads. Why did the industry elect to ignore this breakthrough for so long, for even the early recordings of the Beatles were nearly all done in mono?
1: I guess with any new technology, and we still see this today, it just takes a while for it to be adopted. And sometimes it can take so long to be adopted that people kind of lose interest and it never sees really mass, mass consumption. Uh, stereo did luckily see mass consumption, but it took a while. Um, so yeah, Alan Bloomline, um, I think he was in a cinema theatre in the early 30s um, and just noticed how when a character walked from one side of the screen to the other, the sound just stayed in the middle. There was no interaction with the sound as to what he was seeing on screen. So he designed a microphone that could record stereo. He designed a cutting lathe that could cut in stereo. He did some music recordings in Studio Two, the first ever stereo music recordings. But the world just wasn't ready for it. Everyone was broadcasting in mono. Everyone had mono playback equipment at home. And it wasn't until the mid fifties that the music industry started to think about stereo as as a new format that could be adopted. As you mentioned, the Beatles were still spending their time on the mono mixes. Um, I think at Abbey Road, what they did was, uh, certainly in Studio 3, they had two control rooms, a mono control room uh, and then a stereo control room. They'd run the recordings simultaneously. The story goes is that the Beatles would spend all their time on the mono mixes, then they'd, they'd I don't know whether it was like a contractual thing from the, the label, what have you, but they had to do a stereo mix. And it was like, okay, we we'll are chuck the drums on this side, chuck the vocals on that side, done. It, I don't think there was a huge yeah, amount was, of thought into Yeah, it. that's what I was going to ask you. The extreme 180
0: polarisation of, of instrumentation. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when the albums came out, the hi-fi albums, uh, and you'd put the needle down, and you'd turn out the balance and you'd have drums all on one side, bass on the other, Piano, guitar, nothing was down centre.
1: Yeah, it was, it, I think it was just because people didn't
0: really know what to do with it. Even to his last day, Jeff Emmerich said that the only version to really listen to of Sgt. Pepper was the mono, which is startling to many people, um, that he would put that much emphasis on what now would be considered a primitive format. But, I mean, that was what he wanted.
1: I think mono is a great format. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and then stereo came along. Another innovation,
0: of course, was with Ten Townsend, member of the British Empire, invented the Artificial Double Tracking, or ADT, system, uh, and that was employed for Revolver. I understand it was mainly at the request of Lennon that he came up with uh, with that technique.
1: Yeah, so um, the, the Beatles, uh, as I'm sure other artists sort of quickly worked out in, in the era of multi-tracking that if you re-recorded your voice or guitar or piano, whatever it is you're doing, um, on top of itself on, a, on an adjacent track, you get a very nice uh, thickening effect. Um, the problem with that is is that, is that you um, you do your first performance, then you go back to layer on top of your first performance. You have to get the layering exactly, correctly, on bang-on, Time and pitch with the first performance, which isn't as easy as it sounds, because um, if you don't get it bang on, it sounds a bit messy, and you, yeah, before you know it, it's just not a nice effect. Um, so it's actually quite a bit of an art form, really, to be able to double track yourself. Anyway, I would imagine—no pun intended—nope, certainly not. I would imagine that the you know people like John Lennon and other artists probably found this quite tedious, uh, even though they loved the effect. Uh, so. John Lennon um, asked uh, the then head of technical, Ken Townsend, you know, can we do this another way? Do I have to really go back and re-record it? Um, and Ken came up with the, the idea of ADT. Um, I think he was driving home from that session, and it, the idea popped into his head that if you take the original tape, you've got the tape machine, the original tape machine you've done the recording on, you take the track you want to double track, and you feed that into a second tape machine, uh, so then you've kind of got two mechanical devices which aren't exactly running at exactly the same speed. Uh, that's just inherent with anything mechanical. Uh, and then on that second machine, you can also use the very speed to kind of uh, make it quicker and slower. Vesylate. Yeah. And then, and then and then you bring those two signals up against one another. And because it's um, you've got two mechanical machines, you actually get a nice non not too artificial sounding double tracking um, because there's a lot of me- mechanics going on there and the very speed and uh, it's it's a lovely effect. I wouldn't say it sounds exactly like double tracking but perhaps pretty, again, why well, the Beatles loved it because it just sounded so new and fresh and like no one had he- heard this before.
0: There are places I remember Things that um we've alluded to briefly is the the, what I call chasing of sound for different purposes. Um obviously Lenin in particular McCartney were very enchanted with American sounds. Uh and then conversely you had uh the Americans who were very intrigued by the British sounds, so you have uh pet sounds being produced by Brian Wilson, and then the counter answer to that is of course Sergeant Pepper. Uh, is there a distinct
1: abbey road sound that others are trying to emulate in your estimation there is definitely what something i would say is is the abbey road sound um it's a mixture of the acoustics of the rooms the the equipment that have been used over the years uh, our, our microphone collection we've got over 700 microphones some of which go right back to the beginning and then the recording techniques that have been passed down from engineer to engineer over generation to generation so there's there's an Abbey Road sound without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, um, I mean the it's kind of interesting. It's the the Beatles were always striving to get that American sound, uh, and I think what it was is is that as I mentioned earlier on, the recording techniques being used in those early days of pop recording were, were hammy downs from from the classical guys, uh, and and classical is about. Capturing the room, the, the, the scene, the picture, as if you're sat in front of the performance. So that same technique was was adopted with, with early pop and rock recordings. But I think they noticed how the Americans were just getting like a, a, a more bass, uh, more closeness, um, a, a sort of a richer, kind of deeper sort of thing going on with, with rock and pop. Um, and it turned out it was, it was simple things like literally moving the microphones closer to, to the instruments, um, which was frowned upon back, back in those early days. I mean, if you take a, like a ribbon microphone and put it right in front of the kick drum, chances are you're going to break the ribbon microphone. So, um, you know, you hear all these stories of engineers having to get like official letter sign off from the technical department about being allowed to, you know use these microphones closer and they they did get through a lot of microphones until they worked out which microphones could handle the louder noise but yeah it kind of so recording almost went from being um we are you are now listening to something like a performance sat in front of a performance to what we kind of call this hyper real thing um and then the beatles just took that just way off the scale i mean if you talk about sergeant pepper if you listen to a song like a day in the life i mean it's the production on that is just outrageously complicated so I'm not surprised it then went the other way where, uh, you know, bands from other countries were like, how are they doing this? How are they getting that? We want that. Um, So, you know, that's the way it goes. Well, speaking of microphone collections, which you've uh, alluded to, for the film
0: The King's Speech, Colin Firth actually used the microphone that was originally used by King George VI. So is that part of the uh, collection that you have here, the
1: microphones going that far back? Yes, so so that came about because EMI used to, or it's HMV back then, I think. Um, they would they would. Let um, me just
0: explain for an American audience. HMV is His Master's Voice, which is the equivalent of RCA in the United States.
1: They not only did the recordings, they also made the gear to be able to do the recordings. So not only did they sound good, they they looked beautiful. They were you know they were made for the royal family. So those microphones still exist in archives to this day, and when they did the film *The King's Speech*, uh, the engineer, um, he, you know, he said to the director, you know, we still have these microphones. Um, our, our microphone technician, Lester Smith, he actually got three of them working. Well,
0: seeing that we're talking about cinema and film productions, to a large extent there wasn't a lot of extensive soundtrack recording going on at Abbey Road, and then it suddenly came into a big flourish uh, in the 1980s with uh, soundtracks to The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, now, of course, we have Harry
1: Potter soundtracks
0: recorded here.
1: What made that transition? Ken, Ken Townsend again, um, the, the, the chap who invented ADT. Um, he, he saved the day once again. Uh, I'm talking about the late 70s now. There was a lull in Studio One when it came to classical music. The whole digital CD thing hadn't quite kicked off by then. So most of the repertoire had been done, recorded, released, put out on LP or cassette. Uh, I think the first film score, or the second film score to be done here was Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. And uh, to this day, we still do a lot of film scores. Um, It just... You know, it blossomed from there, really. I mean, these, these big films of the 80s, Aliens, Robocop, Brazil. Then in the 90s, we had, like, Braveheart and, um, you know, later on, the Harry Potters, The Lord of the Rings. And, you know, to this day, a lot of the Marvel films, you know, it just continues. We, we do a lot of film scores. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing.
0: I'd like to ask you, Merrick, um, uh, about your experience working with various artists. Which artists have you worked with and uh, just general impressions of various personalities that come to the top of your mind?
1: I think anyone who works here at Abbey Road, you're very lucky because you see such a a diverse range of amazing artists and composers um, and bands. Um, I mean, things that stick out for me is working with um, bands like Muse, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, did a great... Session with with Sir Paul McCartney. Tell me a little bit about uh, Kanye West. So I, I found uh, working with Kanye West really inspiring. It was it kind of ha- it was one of those things that almost happened by accident. I think uh, Kanye um, was doing a string overdub in Studio Two, and then I was showing him around, and Studio Three, which is hardly ever empty, just happened to be empty. So Kanye was like, "Oh, I like this room." Um, I think I'm going to spend the next few days here, you know. So, before I knew it, um, we were just recording stuff. And there was one thing I'll never forget, which is this is like, you know, one of those things in life, lessons in life, where if you know you don't ask, you don't get. Um, so, I think Coldplay were doing a, a live uh, performance down in Studio One. And yeah, so I think Kanye said something on the lines that, you know, I'm going to go and, you know, go down and see. If Chris wants to sing on this song, and I was thinking to myself, okay, you know, amazing, that'd be amazing, you know, thinking nothing would happen, and then before I knew it, Chris Martin was in front of the microphone.
0: What was the track that he was uh, recording with Chris?
1: Uh, the, The track was called Homecoming. Yeah, we recorded that in Studio 3. Yeah. And you say, shy city. Shy city. Shot city I'm coming home again Do you think about me now and then Yeah do you think about me now and then Cuz I'm coming home again Maybe we could start again So yeah I did quite a lot of rock and pop stuff I was I was really lucky uh, I got to work on the uh, remixing of the anthology Beatles Anthology for DVD so we went back to all the multi-tracks and remixed everything from scratch in five one. so I mean to be able to just listen to all those multi-tracks was just like you know a dream come true I guess. Um. The counts and things of
0: this nature I mean I would think that the, the most enjoyable part uh, to listening to the early you know uh, analogue recordings is just that the off-the-cuff stuff that you would hear with the dialogue between them all I mean you must have felt like 40 years hence you are a fly on the wall to what's going on in, in Studio 2 no it
1: is it's, to hear that, that that sort of stuff is yeah. amazing because you're not, you're not really well, I don't know if you're not supposed to hear it or not but no one normally does it's just it's on the tape but it didn't make the master
0: stop Bye. he shut his eyes and I get very involved you know one two one two three four tell you what do do more sort of dum uh, dum
1: put pum pum in a bit.
0: Yeah, it's just something a bit more because it does sounds a bit dead when you hear it. Just does an intro. Dum right, George. It's like mine. Coinciding with our time at Abbey Road Studios is the re-release, after 50 years, of The Beatles' eponiously entitled album Abbey Road. After a span of five decades, the album has hit number one on Billboard's charts yet again. The late Sir George Martin's son, Giles Martin, speaks of his work on the album's new remix.
1: We're locked in a room here at Abbey Road, and we go through all of the tapes, and what you get is you get something where you're you sort of feel closer to the album. And it's also for a new generation as well. I mean, the album's 50 years old and we you know, mix it for a new generation too. The thing about studios is that great studios like Abbey Road is that you can't help be affected by the legacy that's been in them. There's a lot of extras on this album and we have teams that listen to every single outtake and I'll then go through everything. Giles Martin,
0: now back to our continued discussion with Merrick Styles. What are you doing at the beginning? Who? Okay. (laughs) It sounds like Dave Clark. (laughs) One, two, three, four. How do you handle being loyal to the intrinsic value of the original stuff, and yet at the same time modernize it?
1: Yeah, you, you don't want to take things too far. You, you definitely need to be loyal to the recording, and also not not just don't lose what they were trying to achieve originally. You know, you don't just go off on a tangent and do whatever you want. You need to get that multi-track to where the master ended up being. So it, at the end of the day, it's like chasing the original mix, and and that is your starting point. You don't do, you know. You can't go anywhere else until you've got that, which is could be really challenging. You know, what EQ did they use? You know, what, what, you know. I guess we knew what equipment they were using, um, some of which wasn't available anymore or wasn't around anymore. So there was there was a lot of um, detective work. I mean, especially the later uh, John Lennon solo albums. I remember a lot of detective work going on because that was during the seventies. Now, I imagine it was partly recorded at
0: Ascot and his home, yeah. and partly recorded here. Yeah. Okay, and then he started to record in New York, of course. Uh, That's uh,
1: right, and they're the recordings that I remember being the trickiest in New York because that was about the time when there was all, like, quite a new effects coming onto the scene. These things hadn't existed before, so when you do remixes in that era, you're kind of like, okay, what device did they use to get this sound? Yeah. So you have to do a bit of research, and you have to try and locate one of those devices, because it's so integral to the original mix. Now, um, Phil
0: Spector did Imagine, and he did Plastic Ono Band as well. When you have an American producer come in, and they have total... I mean, obviously, there was discord about uh, Let It Be, and then they had to redo that. Um But with American producers working with British artists and you're remixing them here at Abbey Road, that must be a tremendous challenge.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if anything like that, it's, yeah, it's, it is a challenge. Uh, There's a lot, it's not, because you're not just, you're not doing what... Standard practice. Well, yeah, you're just, you're not doing what you think is right. Um, You you have a responsibility to um, kind of get back to, to what has historically always been known. So it's a very difficult task.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you're just joining us right now, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and we have the great pleasure of being in Abbey Road itself, speaking with Merrick Stiles, uh, who is in charge, amongst other things, besides engineering, previous and remixing various sessions, is now in charge of audio products for um, the very prestigious Abbey Road. I want to ask you about the future. Um, As you see it, you have made a tremendous footprint around the world, in addition to the location of 3 Abbey Road here. You now have facilities in Paris, you have facilities in Australia, uh, other parts of Europe. How does that marshal out as far as where this this institution is going in your mind?
1: Abbey Road Studios I think historically has always gone out of its comfort zone and we continue to do that um, if we think it's the right thing to do, if we think it's um, the right way to go. Um, so yeah, we, we started doing plugins um, in the sort of mid 2000s um, as a way of producers, engineers, artists all around the world who can't get to Abbey Road to get some of that Abbey Road sound um, and to use some of this equipment that just, just wouldn't be available to them. And then we took that one step further more recently with uh, introducing online mixing and online mastering. Um, so you can work remotely with with one of the engineers here at Abbey Road. Let me ask you about that. Is if this because there'll be many people
0: listening who would just dream to have somebody from Abbey Road mix their session.
1: If you go onto a website, all the details are there. The process is is that you upload your multi track with, with notes and reference mixes uh, and any um, any examples of of what you're trying to achieve um, for our engineers to listen to, and then. Um, basically like any normal session but except we do it remotely which is you know the, the power of the internet you know we can we can do that and it's just the way of um, you know the people who can't get to abbey road they can still work with us you know at the end of the day we just want to help as many people as possible make music
0: now i s- understand that there's another innovation which is called the gatehouse here at abbey Road, which is extremely exciting would you mind telling my audience about that
1: ever since the studio's first opened, um, there's been three main studios. Studio One, which is the big orchestral studio. Studio Two uh, is like the mid sized studio. Uh, that's the Beatles one, for example. Um, and then Studio Three uh, is the smaller of the, th- of the three, but it's still pretty big by most standards. Um, so, and then there's, there's a penthouse studio upstairs, which is just more or less purely for mixing, although we have just recently added a new booth. Um, so you can do overdubs there, but anyway, what I'm trying to say is, is that um, these are they're, they're big studios by any stretch of the imagination, um, and um, they don't always cater for bands with a smaller budget. We wanted to make sure we are as, as realistic uh, and and we're available to um, to as, as many musicians and artists as possible um so we did our research and it was literally a case of you know what are the budgets for for bands you know um so we want to be realistic and, and provide facilities that catered for those budgets uh, and that's what we've done with two new studios we've opened um so we've got the gatehouse studio which you've mentioned which is a i love it it's probably my new favorite studio i mean it's got a lovely vibe really nice atmosphere a, a amazing neve desk um it's it's just in a sm- slightly smaller room i mean i say smaller you can still quite comfortably record a band in there and it's probably of um you know comparable size to most studios in london it's just by our standards it's smaller um but you still got access to all the microphones the same engineers the same equipment um so nothing else is smaller by you know any stretch of the imagination uh, and then there's another studio called the front room which again is um smaller more comfortable um more intimate environment um so yeah we've opened those two studios up they've been really popular who's been here recently so i mean Brockhampton recorded and mixed their last album here in its entirety frank ocean um lady gaga noel gallagher did, did his last album here kanye west adele adele oh. uh, florence and the machine i mean the, the, the list just goes on um it's amazing having um, just such a diverse range of artists coming through those doors. Tell me about Abbey Road Red. I'm intrigued by this. It's our incubation programme. am uh, to explain what that is. So it's a way for Abbey Road to help out up-and-coming tech companies, for want of a better way of saying it. Uh, entrepreneurs, um, people with an idea, people with a vision. There's, there's a lot going on in that scene at the moment. Whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, source separation, there's technology out there where you can take a mono recording and and you can unbake the cake, as it were, and then do a remix. Uh, there's things like virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, whatever you want to call it. Um, that there's ways of of listening uh, to music and listening and having these experiences that are very different to what we've been what we've known in the past. So there's all these new technologies coming along. Uh, I mean Abbey Road has always still been a testing ground as it were we've seen it all over the years and when someone has a new idea they normally come here and try it out Uh, but actually innovation from from within, from here Uh, and the recent RED program was a way of Abbey Road getting back to that a little bit
0: I've seen depictions of you with with false heads uh, like the asthma recording type things Uh, where's that going?
1: Do you mean uh, like virtual reality? Yes, yes
0: the psychological almost experience of perception of sound.
1: Yeah, so... Am I wrong? No, no, you're not wrong. I'm just trying to think of a way of... uh, This is another long story. This actually goes back to the kind of stereo story where um, it took a while for people to catch on, as it were, or for it to find a home. So we're in a position now where we've got virtual reality, um, where you've got a 360 world you're in. Uh, And as with the 360 world, or or as in real life, I should say, you know, your field of vision is 110 degrees thereabouts, Uh, you you rely on sound to fill in the blanks. So I'm looking at you now, if someone's behind me and they want my attention, they're going to say, you know, hi, or something like that, I'm going to hear that behind me, right? Mm -hmm. That's my audio cue to say someone, you know, to turn my head. Same in virtual reality, you kind of need spatial audio cues to let you know what you're supposed to be interacting with, what's supposed to be going on. Um... But um, VR only really works with headphones. It's not practical to have it being a room full of speakers. So you've got a pair of headphones. Um, a pair of headphones has got two drivers going directly into the left ear and directly into the right ear. So it's not very 3D, right? So there's techniques you can use to fake the 3D sound over a pair of headphones. And that's really key to having a really good virtual reality experience. Now the reason I say this goes back to um, you know the history books. so. There's this technique called ambisonic microphone recording, uh, which has now found a home for VR because it's a way of capturing 3D sound fields, zones, if you you want to call them. Um, It was invented in the mid-70s by a guy called Michael Curzon from Oxford University. Um, It was kind of one of those things where he came up with this amazing technique, amazing concept. It worked. No one knew what to do with it. Didn't have a home. Um, round about the same time the whole quad thing had happened mm. in the music industry, where you had. People, I remember
0: that quadraphonic sound. Quadraphonic yeah.
1: sound, and it just it died a death. People weren't ready for it, or people didn't have the appetite for it. So I think the labels got burnt a little bit by that. So they had zero interest in this new, this ambisonic thing. Um, so and it's only I would say there's been a, a niche of engineers and academics who have carried on doing research for um, ambisonics, but it's never really found a home. There was the other thing of the of binaural recordings is another thing, um, and that's that was um, that's a case of taking, of mimicking how the head hears. Um, so not only you know you, you've got two ears obviously, but you, you've got your torso, you've got your head, the size of your head, your nose, um, and you've got the shape of your ears, uh, and all that determines how you hear sounds
0: that's fascinating because i'm conscious of the fact now that as you speak to me i've never thought about this before part of my auditory comprehension is what i'm hearing on the on the front of my by my, my nasal cavities if yeah yeah i can actually feel the vibration of your voice there i'd never thought about that
1: yeah it's um so you know so a sound coming into the left ear yes say yeah or more in the left ear yeah it's going to hit the left ear before it hits the right ear right so there you've got a discrepancy right it's also going to the right what the right ear is what the right ear is hearing is also going to be shielded by your nose perhaps yes um, so it's going to be have a different frequency. That's yes. another discrepancy. Yes. All these things um, determine how we hear sound in the real world. Yes. Um, so there's this technique called binaural, um, You can and you can binauralize a recording, or you can binauralize at the mixing, or do both. But effectively, it's a way of, of using um, spectral filtering or or delays to mimic how we actually hear. And one technique is to have, uh, which I think you mentioned, is like they call it a dummy head. Mm. So you literally have a head and you put microphones where the ears are, uh, and that gives you a, a very different recording experience to just using a standard microphone. So you've got those types of microphones, you've got Amazonic types of microphones, you've got various software that allows you to mix in between the two or mix just normal microphones into that sound field, as it were. All of this, all these techniques allow us to get very realistic, lifelike sound over a pair of headphones for VR. Merrick, you've been extremely generous with your time and your attention. I think we've covered everything I could possibly think of. You've done your research, um, you've, yeah... I think you've nailed it all, yeah. (laughs)
0: Very good, good. Well, on behalf of my audience for watching America, I want to thank Merrick Stiles. Thank you so very much for spending this time with us. Pleasure. By extension, a great thank you to the, shall I call it, the institution, the home, the house of Abbey Road. Thank you so very, very much. Been listening to a special edition of Watching America from Abbey Road Studios in London. Many thanks to Watching America's UK-based coordinator and producer, Julian Belvedere. Our regular producer is Paul Bebo. Our senior producer, Gina Gamboni. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Marzoni is chief of content. And Bert Schmidt is our CEO. This particular show was sound engineered and edited by yours truly. I'm also the series creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Next week, I'll be back in the United States. But from London, I say take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.